First of all, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Believe it or not, this is strange because there's a, a heavy gospel theme in this for a Bible study. We might say, well, why would you bring out a gospel theme in a Bible study? I don't know. <laughs> it's just how I feel led. And um, it's a gospel theme in it that, um, although we're believers, maybe, It'll speak to our hearts and the Lord will use it for whatever reason. But let's just see how the Lord leads us. Luke 13 and verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Just let that sink in a minute. The Galileans were northern Israel, um, the land of northern Israel. It was where the northern House of Israel were take were uh, that was where they were their kingdom was and now it's about seven hundred and fifty plus years since they have been taken captive and what happened was the Assyrians who took them captive with King Sennacherib he came right down through the north took all the ten tribes right into the borders of Judah the southern kingdom. And he took 46 fortified or fenced cities. And he took them away captive. And it's at that time in history, you'll read of Hezekiah, the king in Judah. And the king in Judah, he was a good king. And all the kings in the north, because they had broken off and separated, all the kings in the north were bad kings. Ahab was one of them and so on. You know, we, um, we haven't time to go through them. But they were, everyone was a bad king, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, because they were evil. There was a false line of worship. They they took them all away, and some of the priests of this false line of worship were sent back in to teach the people about the worship and how to worship. But what they did is they had brought in what was called the Samaritan, and they had populated them with other people who were non-Israelite people. And so those who had escaped there were those who had escaped the captivity off the house of Israel uh, into, into Assyria. And in the Bible, they're called, or they're likened onto gleanings of grapes. They're likened onto a tithe of the house. Some who had escaped, like you'd see in some of the, the nations today who are escaping out of the way from whether it is in Syria or ISIS, from ISIS and so on, or from Assad and all that mess there. You see people hiding in these little enclaves and that happened in the northern kingdom. Now Sennacherib comes down, he gets to the border and good king Hezekiah, this house of Judah at the south, were still serving the Lord. So God would protect them. Hezekiah is sick. He prays with his face to the Lord, his face to the wall unto the Lord. Isaiah the prophet comes in and says, set thine house in order for I shall die and not live. He's crying unto the Lord. He's been what's known as the reformer. He's the one who cast down all the idols that they were putting up, opens up the fresh, the temple, finds the book of the law and reads it in public. And he's the reformer, takes away the removal of faults. So if you want, Martin Luther wasn't the first reformer, even though before that Johann Huss was a reformer too. But Martin Luther wasn't really the first reformer. If you want to go to reformers, go back to Hezekiah. 
in Judah and he reformed Judah and he changed the whole system right back to the Lord again. So what had happened in time is that uh, he, seeks, he seeks the Lord. Isaiah is walking out of the palace after giving him the bad news. The Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, go back again, tell the servants of Hezekiah the king to make a poultice, stick it on the sore boiler, it was a tumor of some sort, and I'll heal him. And so he does that, and Hezekiah is healed and given 15 years of the Lord. 15 years. And you know, God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. And the only thing about it is, is he has a son called Manasseh. Manasseh was one wicked, wicked, evil king. And Manasseh then, he was taken away later by the Babylonians. And as he's taken away, he learns more in his chains of punishment than he did in his freedom as a king. And at the end of all the murders and all the wickedness he did, God still forgave him. And he turned his face to the Lord. And you know what? He learned more in the prison than what he did in the palace. And you know, that's a lesson for all of us. Sometimes we wonder why things are happening, but you may, you'll learn more in a prison about the Lord than you do in the palace. And God can work with us easier in the prison than he does uh, with us in the palace. But notice this, you see, what happens is Hezekiah cries on the Lord, and then we have the great miracle where they start coming down. He changes and he gives all the, the gold away from the temple there, and he's afraid instead of trusting again in the Lord. And what happens is he gives the gold away, the shields of gold around uh, the walls. He takes them down and he gets brass and he polishes them. He makes sure they're well polished. And he says, look, a man on a galloping horse type of thing won't notice this. But the Lord noticed it. The Lord noticed it. And the thing about it was it ended up that Hezekiah had this wicked son. Sometimes even when God's way seems, well, why, Lord, did that loved one pass on? Or why did... You not heal this one or that one again. Why, our Lord, why did you, you know, not extend their life? And we need to leave some of those things with, in the Lord's hands because He might know something down the line, or He would know something down the line you and I might not know. That you and I might not know. And I look even at my own family at times why the Lord didn't heal some of my family, yet I've seen others healed that we haven't prayed for. And I questioned the Lord many, many, many times. And even now, just a few years down the line, I'm looking back and I can see the wisdom of the hand of God already revealing in things and time. Sometimes we don't understand it now, but God will reveal it to us as we go along. And of course, all will be revealed when we get into his kingdom. And, you know, so here we have Hezekiah. He's... uh Given 15 years and bad comes from it through Manasseh. But God is always able to take the bad and turn it for the good. For in all things, God works together for the good. Isn't that right? To them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So always look for his purpose in everything that happens in your life. and every disappointment in your life. You always look for God's purpose. And when you don't see and can't see his purpose, then what you do is you... Trust and lean in his hand. Trust and lean in his hand and rest in his assurance that he is still on the throne. Now, what happens is the Galileans are all those mixture of people. When you get to, for example, John chapter 4, read it when you go home, it's the woman at the well. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And you see the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. 
That's why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, because Jesus was really a Galilean from that area. He wasn't actually, he was from the tribe of Judah, but his region was Galilee. And he went down into Jewry, J-E-W, Jewry, into Jewry, where they were had their strongholds more in the southern regions. And there, and that's why they sought to kill him. So he went back up into Galilee at times, because his time hadn't come. So there's a lot of things in the scriptures we need to realize why they're written there. And these Galileans, Pilate went and slaughtered them and mixed their, their blood with sacrifices under the pagan gods. And, and so it looks as if, well, they must be really wicked people. But when Jesus is speaking here, notice how he turns it around to the Jews in the day. And he turned it around to the Pharisees and the wickedness of them. And how they were leading people astray. Notice this. Jesus, first two, Jesus answering and said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Isn't it so easy to point the finger and say, you know, oh, he must have been a bad lad. She must have been a wrong one. That's not true. No more bad or wrong than you and I. That's the truth of it. They may have got up to more. But in the eyes of God, we're all sinners. And so repentance is to be for all. And if we don't repent, he says, you'll perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? So 18 die when this big tower falls on them. And Jesus says, because those 18 were there at that time, do you think they were worse than you? Do you think because such and such has happened, they're worse than you? Is this all because of... Look, there are men's sins that go before them and the Lord deals with them in this life. And then there are others you think, well, they're getting away with it. Listen, nobody gets away with it. Everyone stands before God. And whether they have their sin paid in this life, in the sense that the Lord deals with them, And they repent or else it's at that life where they're lost forever. Thank the Lord he dealt with me and my sin in this life. And you thank God that he dealt with you and your sin in this life. Because if he had waited to the next life as it were until after death, the judgment, we would have all been lost if he hadn't have dealt with it. So notice this. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he, he spake also this parable. Notice, a certain man planted a fig tree. Pardon me, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. What are you speaking about, Jesus? I'll tell you what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the house or the remnant of the house of Judah. The Jews that were there, he was saying, there's a certain man speaking of Almighty God, his father, himself really. Notice this. Andrew, can you turn me down slightly? I'm just bouncing off this pulpit and it's echoing up and down. Thank you. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now I need you to turn with me um, for a moment to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. 
Verse 1 says, The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord, after that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Notice this. He's talking about the kings of Judah. The house of Israel and the ten tribes are all gone. They're carried away. The 46 fenced cities of Judah are also gone with them. And what happened was they kept encroaching and encroaching right down to just outside Jerusalem. And the people cried unto the Lord and the Lord spared the city. Spared Jerusalem. And when they came out that day, thousands of the Assyrian troops were lying dead outside. God had slain the enemy in one night. To show you how God can answer a prayer for you, you go to bed one night and it's completely different the next morning. It's like the Israelites in the wilderness. And the Lord says, you go to bed. When you get up in the morning, there's going to be mama. You're talking about a population bigger than the size of Northern Ireland. Think about this. Bigger than Northern Ireland. Just under maybe, maybe one and a, a half times the size of Northern Ireland maybe. And the Lord says, in the wilderness, you just go to bed. You wake up in the morning, I'll have bread for you on the floor. And you see, while they in faith were sleeping, God, as it were, in his heaven was baking. And even whenever you're sleeping, you see, God is always in control. God is always working, even when you're unconscious. God is always on the side of his people and of his children. And every morning they got up without fail and what was on the floor but the manna that he had promised. And yet we would worry half the night and be awake half the night and think half the night and toss and turn half the night. You know why? Because we're worried about the next day. And the Lord says, you sleep, leave it with me and I'll look after it. Oh, we need to learn, don't we? We need to learn. And so here, but the Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Now Judah has went wicked, corrupt before God. And God has now had enough and judgment was coming to them. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes to carry them away. And notice what it says in verse 2. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other figs had very not and the other basket had very naughty figs which could not be eaten, they were so bad. And the Lord said unto me, What sayest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. That cannot be eaten, they are so evil. And again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Now, you would think, no, the Lord would keep them in Jerusalem, and they'd be good, wouldn't you? But the Lord says, no, the ones that are being carried away, If they go willingly, he says, they are the very good things. Yet the ones who deny what I have said and stay and remain here, he says, they're the very bad things. Notice what he says in verse 6. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again into this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me. 
that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart and as the evil figs which cannot be eaten they are so evil surely thus saith the Lord so will I do to Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt notice the Lord says there's good figs and there's bad figs Really evil ones and really good ones. Here's a wee word for you. And I know, and I know plenty like this. And I've actually friends as well like this. I have to admit it. And we would differ in areas like, but I know friends and they think everybody who's a Jew is an evil person. You can't say that. You can't do that. You just can't say that. Are there evil ones? Absolutely they are. But sure there's evil ones amongst us <laughs> over here as well, isn't there? <laughs> The Lord says there are, and when we get to the book of Revelation, there are those who say uh, they are Jews but are not, says the Lord, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's how evil they are. But that doesn't mean to say they're all like that. We have to differentiate. But there are true Judaite Jews and there are those who are not. And there's evil and there's good. But notice this, I will deliver him to be removed into the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse, all places whither I shall drive them. So that happens, doesn't it? So that's a way in the Jeremiah, they're all carried away, captive. Now this is important why I want to say this to you. You see, the good ones we thought, because, well, they're being carried away captive, Lord. Sure, it's the ones in Jerusalem who are taking their stand, and they're going, you know, we see the ones in Jerusalem were that evil. They were aligning themselves with everybody else to fight against what God had told them to do. Because God had sent Jeremiah to say, I want you to go in, go willingly. The Lord wanted a surrendered heart in the king, or in Judah, and in Jerusalem, to go in, even with the enemy into Babylon, to trust his word, to trust his plan, and to trust his purpose with all of their heart. Because he says, if you trust me, I'll keep you. And he says, watch, he says, I'll bring you out again. Sometimes we think, that, Lord, we're going into the wilderness here. I'm not going. We kick and scream the whole way through it. Not true. Lord, why is it going like that? But the Lord says, no, you surrender to my sovereignty and watch me bring you back out again. And that's what he was doing here. In fact, if you were to flick to Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, let's go to verse 10. Everybody quotes it. Well, most people, Christians, quote this. And that's okay. I'm saying nothing wrong with that. But notice this. Verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. In causing you to return to this place. The Lord says, trust me. Trust me. But Lord, the enemy, like he's going to have a field day. He says, trust me. I'm still in charge. I'm still on the throne. I'm still in control. I'm still sovereign. He says, I'll cause you to return to this place. Now notice, this is the one everyone quotes. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now we, we quote that, don't we? I know the thoughts I think towards. No, that's okay, because the Lord does think thoughts towards us for good and so on. But really, in the context that it's written in, was to the Judaites who were going into Babylon, who were yielding on their God's word, 
And God was saying, I'm thinking toward you. You might think you're forgotten about. You may think that you have put out of the way and nobody wants you and everybody's just done with you and the enemy's had his way and there's no, not going to be any use for you and you're never going to be used by me anymore. You've had your chance. He says, listen, he is always the God of grace. He's always the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. He's the God of a million chances. And he says, I will not forget you and I will bring you back again. And he did. He released them after 70 years. In fact, if you go to the book of Daniel, if you go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, now this is, this chapter is a minefield, okay? So we're not going to end this tonight because we need a few nights on this chapter. This is a minefield. But you look what Daniel says. That's just for time's sake, go to verse 2. He's in, he's one of the good figs. He's a good fig. And Daniel is in Babylon. As a young boy brought in, now he's older. Listen to this. Daniel 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Notice the book he's reading. See that? Jeremiah, the one we're only after reading. This is years later. Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish, what does it say? 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. I set my face to the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him, to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned. Notice that he's praying now. Lord, it's coming up to 70 years. It's time we repented. You're going to send your word. You're going to accomplish your word. It's time we got right with God. Brothers and sisters, even as the church sometimes, you know, now there's a lot of teaching in the church. We don't need repentance in ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we always should keep short accounts with God. We always should be on our knees. I know the blood's saves us and cleanses us. And I know we're forgiven. And I know we're under grace. But we should be on our knees saying, Lord, I'm pleading the blood afresh. I know it still avails. But Lord, I want to walk right before you. Seventy years later, so he starts praying. And um, I'll not go into it tonight, but if you read on down that chapter, because we haven't time. If you read on down that chapter, here's what you'll find. You'll find that um, in Daniel chapter 9, here is where the minefield is. Um, Let your eye run down. Daniel 9 to verse 24. Remember he's reading the book of Jeremiah, isn't that right? 70 weeks comes the vision, okay? 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Do therefore and understand that from going forth of the commandment to restore and and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall, shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. After three score and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Isn't that right? He died in the midst of 
the week, three and a half years. Well, a week, you see, is a prophetic week. So it's three and a half years. It's the three and a half days or the midst of the week is three and a half years. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, because that was for you and I, isn't that right? But not for himself. And the people of the princes shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. Now, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation that shall be determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let me mention this. I'm not going to go into the teaching of it. So if anybody listens to it online and have an argument with me, I'm sorry, I'm just not able to do it tonight. People look for a future antichrist in this. He's not there. They look for a future antichrist in this. This isn't about antichrist. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me show you just briefly. Verse 24, he comes, he finishes the transgression. He dies for us. He finishes the transgression. He makes an end of sins. He makes reconciliation of iniquity. Christ does all of this. He brings in everlasting righteousness. He sets up the vision and the the vision and prophecy, and he anoints the most holy. That is, a, the, the Father either anoints the Son in the river, Jordan, with the Spirit, and then by the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, he anoints the church. When we get down to after Messiah, the prince that shall come, they say, well, that's the Antichrist. This is Titus, the Roman prince that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. It's not an Antichrist. It's Titus, the Roman prince. Notice this. Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And they say this is the Antichrist. He'll make a covenant of one man, future Antichrist, one man Antichrist, makes a covenant with the Jews for a week. That's not him. That's not what that speaks of. But yet that's in the vast majority. Do you know where that teaching comes from? A Jesuit priest. It's a Jesuit priest. In fact, there was a line of them brought out this teaching. The Jesuit priest um, called Lacunza. And he wrote a book. And um, he wrote a book under the, uh, a pseudonym name called Rabbi Ben Ezra. He pretended he was a Jewish uh, rabbi. So he changed his name. He wrote a book and was called The Coming of Christ in Power and Glory. And he wrote, formulated this. You know why? Because the, the reformers were preaching that just shall live by faith. And people were starting to see salvation as by grace through faith, not in the, wor- the ways of the Catholic Church. And they were starting to turn from the Catholic Church on the faith. The Protestant Reformation. So he formulates this to turn the reformed eyes, to turn those away from the papacy as the Antichrist. He writes us, he's coming in the future. And then it says, he, he shall confirm, this, this man shall confirm a covenant with money for one week. He'll make a covenant with the Jews. And then when he makes a covenant with Jews, he breaks it in the midst of the week. Now, let's let the Bible interpret the Bible for a second, okay? So what was the book that Daniel was reading? The book of, okay, let's go to the book of Jeremiah and see what, what Daniel was reading. I went into something here that I didn't mean to go into. But now that we're here, 
Um, I'm doing all of this off the top of my head here, so give me a chance. <laughs> Jeremiah uh, 31. So remember, Daniel's reading this book. And let your eye run down the verse 31. Now remember the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, ten tribes' houses gone. Isn't that right? We talked about that at the start. Now we're in Judah. Judah's taken away, going to be taken away captive. Then we say it's taken away captive. Daniel's reading the book. After 70 years, they'll come back. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a... That's the covenant. That's the covenant he's talking about. Daniel says he will make a covenant or... Uh, 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 he will confirm the covenant. Confirm means there has to be something already said or put in place to be confirmed. Isn't that right? So if you already know something and someone comes along with the word to you, and it's the same word that you already know in your heart or someone else has said it, confirms it. So if this one man, Antichrist, comes to make a covenant, it's not a confirmed covenant because it's it's a completely different covenant. But to confirm something that's already been said... Daniel is looking at Jeremiah and he says, I'm going to confirm what Jeremiah says. Now, I behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, northern kingdom, with the house of Judah, southern kingdom, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. And this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So will you flick there? Now remember, Daniel's reading Jeremiah. This is the covenant's mentioned. Obviously, Daniel's going, I know that covenant. I've just been reading this book. So now Jesus comes. And if you want to go to Hebrews chapter 8. Remember, we're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your eye run down to verse 7, just for time's sake. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second for finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, when Jesus died on Calvary, in the same night on which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broke it, Given thanks and break it, he said, Take it, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Then we're told, likewise, after the same manner, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant or the new testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what is that covenant? It's the covenant of Christ and the cross. He was cut off in the midst of the week. Simple, isn't it? We don't have to try and pick pieces of scripture all over and form all sorts of men and try and guess who it is. Because that's not right. But who it is is Christ and Christ alone. So when we go to Luke 13, those who were in Babylon, the, the good figs are brought out. And then, of course, uh, we read of Ezra at the, building the temple, um, Zerubbabel's temple there with Ezra. We read of Nehemiah building the walls in Jerusalem. And then we, um, we know then Judah go um, faulty again. And Babylonian Talmudism comes in and the traditions of men come in and they just go completely way off the scale. And there's all sorts of odd mixtures of people who weren't Judaites at all then be converted by force to become Judaites. So then again, we have good figs and bad figs. Jews who say they're Jews are not. You see? Does that make sense to you? Um, for example, there was a, a king... Um, a warrior priest of him called John Hyrcanus and he took the Edomites and forced the Edomites to become uh, Jews as into their religion so they weren't true Judaites in fact they were the enemies of Israel and by the time Jesus comes that's why they hate him they detest him and when Jesus comes then that's why he says to them you're off your father the devil does that make more sense to you? It's the reason all these things are said, you see. So now, the figs, remember good and bad figs? So now we're going to read about the fig tree. So now you see the symbology of it, don't you? So said all that to say this. Verse 6, Luke 13, verse 6. And he spake this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Now the vine is a symbol of Israel. Later becomes more known as the house of Israel. Or the house of of Israel in our kingdom was known as the house of Joseph. This is in the Old Testament. It becomes known as the olive tree as well. And the Jews become known as the fig tree. So basically almost in the entirety of it, the fig tree is Jewry. Okay? Um, verse 7, then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, behold these three years. Remember that covenant we were looking at? Behold these three years, I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down while I cometh at the ground. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that, Thou shalt cut it down. So he's saying, Lord, here's three years, he says, this thing's cumbering the ground. There's no fruit on it. Put the axe to the root. And the dresser says, Lord, leave it alone. So this is he speaking of his father. Almighty God saying to him, the son, you're here three years ministering to this fig tree. He came on to his own, his own received him not. You're here ministering to this. Cut it down, son. But he's only given a parable of this now. And he says, Father, leave it alone this year. 
But halfway through that year was when he was crucified for that covenant that we looked at there. Isn't that right? And he was cut off in the midst of the week. Isn't that right? The three years representing three and a half days or three years. And he said, Lord, no. And this is the thing what I want to show you here. We don't know. We don't know the day and the hour when God will say enough is enough. Enough is enough in people's lives who aren't saved. We don't know that. God could be putting up with people for a, for a certain length of time. God's long-suffering and loving kindness is, with, is with, withholding, restraining the, uh, that judgment hand. And whether it's something that happens in, uh, in the life now, or, or something to straighten the Christian up, or those who are unsaved, they die without Christ, and he cuts it down from the ground, as it were. We don't know the next moment, the next day, the next breath. We don't know. That's why we must be saved. That's why we're we're saved. That's why we we must be ready. The Lord says, leave it for this year. And if it bears fruit, sure, that's good. Here's mercy when you don't deserve it. Here's grace finding. Finding them. Let me keep trying. There's no fruit. They didn't turn to Christ. Turn with me just for a moment to Mark 11. God's word's fascinating, isn't it? Mark 11. Um, and let your eye run down. Verse 12. Now, Jesus, this is the week before Jesus dies, okay? We're now looking at the week... He, people think he just went into Jerusalem once. They, they took him in Gethsemane and crucified. He was in and out of Jerusalem at least three times in that one week. He was, he was staying just outside Jerusalem in, in, in Bethany where the poor house was. That's where they anointed with oil and all oh, this money could have been given to the poor and so on. There's a big poor house there. So he was in and out three times. And one time when he goes in, they're strong away in this, earlier in this chapter, Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. And they throw their clothes down as he's walking, going along on the donkey's back, as it were. Now notice the next day. He's back in Bethany in verse 11. Verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came of happily he might find anything thereon, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. So what does that mean? It, sh- it looks the part, doesn't it? It looks the part. He sees the leaves. There's the fig tree. Now Christ knows there's no fruit in that. He's God. But there's some, something to learn in this. So it looks the part. And when he came, he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now, let your eye run down. He goes into Jerusalem. And let your eye run down. Here's the next day. And, verse 20, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remember and saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto him, Have faith in God. 
For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt it in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And then he goes in to a short time of prayer. Now notice, the fig tree was dried up. What, was we, what are we to learn from that? One is, nationally, he's looking to Jewry. And he's saying, there's no fruit. Remember the man, the parable? Digging, leave it alone. I'll dig it and I'll dung it. I'll try my best to work around it. Give it an hour a year. Remember in Daniel, the, half, the, the covenant that was to be made? That everybody's looking for the Antichrist, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it's the new covenant that's to come. Well, here he walks in during that last week. He curses the fig tree. The next day, the fig tree's dried up. The word behold a fig tree here, Peter says, it gives the idea he's shocked. Look at that fig tree. That's why it's like, Master, look at this. And Jesus says to him, listen, Peter, it's not even about drying a tree. He says, see if you have faith in me you'll do even greater. Pray and believe. Put your trust in me, he says. And everything you have, pray and keep trusting. Isn't it marvelous? And of course, that is then the, the prince that would come of Daniel 9 is not an antichrist prince, but was Titus, the Roman prince, who came in AD 70 and destroyed the temple and destroyed the whole fig tree. It was plucked up. Well, why was it an extra, about an extra 40 years? Because God in his mercy gave 40, which is a number of testing. I'll test you to see. I'll let it go and see. Nothing came. Just who Jesus had gathered the day of Pentecost. Through the Spirit and the apostles. But nationally, there was none. So, Let's just go, while we're now finishing on that, let's pray. Let's seek the face of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord just to meet our needs. Ask the Lord to save souls.